0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in African Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Esperanza Brizuela Garcia, and today I will be talking to Dr. Christian Williams about his book, National Liberation in Post-Colonial Southern Africa, an Ethnography of Swapos Exile Camps, published by Cambridge University Press in 2015. Dr. Williams is a senior lecturer in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Free State, South Africa. Dr. Williams, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks very much. Glad to be here.
0: (laughs) Um, I wonder if we could start the interview by you telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: Sure. So uh, I was born in the United States, uh, outside Philadelphia, and I went to school in the Philadelphia area and went to college uh, at Yale. And while I was an undergraduate at Yale, I took um, an African Studies course um, with Eric Warby. And that really opened me up to, um, to African Studies as a field and, and, and captured my interest. I knew I was, I was interested in um, doing uh, international work and intercultural work, um, but it, it opened me to um, uh, many new worlds. Um, and uh, yeah, from from there, uh, when I graduated from school, I decided I, I wanted to be uh, do volunteer work internationally, and I, uh, I signed up to be a World Teach volunteer. Um, world Teach is uh, an organization through the Harvard Institute uh, for International Development that uh, engages in teaching in various parts of the world, and and they had a program in in Namibia that uh, really captured my interests um, both. Because I become interested in African issues, and uh, I had some uh, German-speaking background, um, so and I was especially uh, become interested in in uh, liberation struggles in Southern Africa and their aftermath. So uh, that's what took me to uh, uh, to Namibia, and um, that was in January two thousand. And I, for most of my adult life, I've um, I lived in. Um, Namibia and South Africa. Uh, although I did uh, return to the, the U.S. to to write my PhD at the University of Michigan, um, and uh, um, do move back and forth between those and other spaces.
0: Um, good. And and how did you uh, specifically came to write uh, this book, uh, National Liberation in Post-Colonial Southern Africa?
1: So I was assigned uh, to a, a mission station a Catholic mission station in southern Namibia in a place called Tez. Um, uh, and that location, it's both the name of a mission station as well as a, a uh, village. and um, is also the site where a very important uh, mission school was built, uh, one of these schools that trained in intelligentsia um, for a whole region um, uh, of the country. Uh, to give you a sense, in uh, the early 1970s, from 1973, there was only one school in the whole south of Namibia, from Vintuk to the South African border, that offered uh, grade 12 or standard a- a 10 education to black pupils. And that was the school in in tez known as St. Therese. And uh, while I was at that school, I, as I said, I was interested in, in African social issues and and uh, in history um already but my you know my interest as a volunteer teacher was to try to improve uh, teaching at the school and and I, I got the sense that the best resource that the school had was its former pupils um many of whom had become uh, very accomplished um uh, individuals uh, that were really uh, significant in all sectors of the society but um and they had uh, um, some had maintained contact with the school. Many had lost contact, and and the current people, the then current people at the school, um, didn't have much in the way of contact with those former pupils at the time. And so I, I reached out to some of them to see if they'd be interested in in engaging uh, more with the school. And in the process, I learned a lot about their stories and the, the histories in which they were uh, um, their life that had shaped their lives, uh, including. The history of the school where I was teaching which um, not only had trained in intelligentsia but also was a very uh, significant site of um, anti-apartheid activism in the in the mid 1970s um, as well as uh, the trajectory of, of some of these pupils who were at the school um, in the mid from the mid 70s through the to the 80s who had gone into to exile and really been the first people from that part of of Namibia to join uh, SWAPO, uh, the main Namibian liberation movement in in uh, in exile, and um, I learned, uh, um, moreover, about some of the the conflicts in which these individuals had been embroiled. Um, effectively, uh, um, like uh, many uh, liberation movements, or really all uh, Southern African liberation movements, there were significant conflicts um, during the anti-colonial struggle and in exile, and um, uh, those conflicts uh, pitted uh, many people who were former students of this school. And this uh, these histories of conflicts were not official knowledge. They were not official history. And I, as I learned more and more, I, I saw how this discrepancy between the official narrative of national liberation in Namibia and these unofficial uh, uh, narratives and experiences that uh, the pupils at the school had had um, were... Uh, um, yeah, they were major discrepancies, and the discrepancies were impacting on their lives, uh, the lives of the community I was living in, and, and as I uh, gradually realized, um, really uh, across the, the entire country. And that's, um, that's what drew me into trying to understand um, not only what had happened in, in exile, but also how people narrate histories of, um, of exile, which is the topic of the book.
0: Um, one of the things that it yeah yeah and and but but I, what it's interesting and and to some extent unique about your book is is the window that you adopt of course uh the the camp you know uh, what uh, the liberation movement camp uh, as you come to call it as a very particular space uh not only in which this um conflicts uh, sort of were generated but uh that in a way uh, kind of became the locus of of how people remember those experiences and those conflicts. So um, can you tell us a little bit, uh, now that we're starting to talk about the book more specifically, uh, tell us a little bit about how, uh, you know, what is the place of these camps in sort of like the larger history of uh, liberation movements in Southern Africa? And then uh, how have they been use or not use in the historiography to to explore these histories?
1: So these camps were the sites where most displaced people um, uh, during Southern Africa's anti-colonial struggles lived. Um, Of course, uh, displaced people, exiles um, from Southern Africa found their way all over the world. But um, the vast majority lived in camps and not just camps, but camps that were administered by liberation movements, um, many of which became the the ruling parties um, of the nations after independence. Um, So uh, they are uh, very significant sites, uh, not only uh, both in the national narratives of these countries, because um, the ruling parties... uh, uh, administered these sites for their exiles. In fact, one could say that these are the first sites where um, the ruling parties of South Africa, Zimbabwe, Namibia, Angola, and Mozambique first governed. Um, um, so sort the of very significant sites in the histories of these liberation movements turned ruling parties um, and in the, the narratives that they construct of uh, anti-colonial resistance and... Um, At the same time, there are also uh, very significant sites in the lives of of many individuals um, with different relationships to the the now ruling parties. Um, And um, although in the historiography, as one would expect, uh, quite a bit has been written about uh, the liberation movements in in exile, uh, very little had been written about the, the lived experiences of people inside these camps and and had a little um, a little been done to sort of theorize the the tensions that um, exist between the dominant narratives and the you know uh, diverse experiences of, of individuals um, in relationship to those dominant narratives and so that's the book is trying to um, to point to these tensions um, and and open up uh, new uh, perspectives on on histories um, uh, that uh, had been written heavily through uh, the liberation movements' uh, narratives, whether um, uh, 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 hagiographies of these liberation movements or more critical perspectives, but had not sort of drawn out the diversity of of exile experiences um, and 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 uh, tapped into. The extent to which people talk about these places, because um, because these sites are so significant in national narratives, um, there is a strong uh, impulse um, uh, for for those uh, either in uh, ruling parties who are tr- or who are trying to align with the the uh, those ruling parties uh, um, to uh, tell a very particular narrative of the. Of the camps and and many of the controversial things that unfolded in at these sites then uh, are perceived as um, silenced or unspoken, uh, but in fact people are talking about these sites all the time, but to uh, and there's knowledge circulating about these sites um, in so many locations, but to engage with that knowledge and to engage with those uh, dialogues, one has to move outside of um, the archives of a liberation movement though one can find very valuable things in those archives um, uh, one has to move outside um, uh, a lot of the methods that had previously been used to write about exile and and, and engage in more um, ethnographic fieldwork methods that that tap into um, not only the official spaces of uh, representation of, of exile but also um, uh, different spaces where people are more likely to Articulate themselves um, uh, in a way that doesn't just conform to the national narrative, and that's what I I try to tap into in the book and and theorize some in the book as well.
0: Um, what was also what is also interesting is is your methodology. Uh, you know, you 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 intend to do what you did, a uh, historical ethnography, and um, I wonder if you could tell us a bit how. How you came to sort of craft that particular approach, or 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 realize that that was the best approach uh, to sort of uh, uh, enter this this histories and, and make the connections uh, that that you try to make between uh, the experiences that people remember from the camps, and, and the way this is shaping uh, their everyday experience of 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 uh, post colonial of independence and and, and post colonial life.
1: I think the starting point was really my own experience um, because I had, I lived in Namibia as a volunteer teacher for uh, two and a half years. Uh, really, I, I, I taught at this mission station for two years, um, did a master's degree in, in, in Cape town and then uh, came back and, and taught there some more. And, uh, and so I, I was, I had a, a social network and it was it, you know, introduced to lots of, of of conversations before I actually engaged with the historiography. Um, so uh, and that gave me a, a sort of perspective on how these stories were circulating in a particular niche um that uh, I wouldn't have had if I had started out um I think from reading um you know, an article um or book. Uh but there there are um there are all kinds of relevant archives here, um, and what I found to be uh, really productive um, was to to, uh, to move with these archival sources and take them out of the archives and bring them to uh, people who had lived in an exile and and see how they engage with them. Use the archives to to shape the questions I asked uh, research participants and. And uh, to draw from the questions that research participants asked me to to work with the archives. Um, I think uh, I think I mean it's true for all uh, Southern Africa's liberation movements and liberation struggles. Uh, perhaps more so for Namibia and Swapo than for some others. And um, there is there is no uh, archive that one could. Just used to write uh, this history. I and mean, there's not, there's nothing. Um, Swapo doesn't have uh, an, an extensive archive of its of its own um, time in Excel. It doesn't have something uh, uh, equivalent to what, say, the ANC has in in South Africa. Um, and uh, so, from the start, there was no, uh, again, because of my own personal experience, I wasn't going to. Um, I was going to approach this, I think from a different perspective to begin with, but there, there really is no way you can engage with a lot of these sites and and histories in terms of source material without, um, doing lots of, of oral history, uh, for sure. Um, so, uh, but, and and yet if you develop these relationships with, um, with people, not only can, uh, you know, one learn a great deal, and 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 work in some uh, source materials that one can find at a place like the National Archives of of Namibia about um, Swapo and exile. But also, that one finds that lots of people have their own personal archives, which are um, really very rich. So, yeah, I guess uh, you know, to you know, to summarize it, a lot of it was serendipity in my own experience at, at the approach, um, and then uh, and then. You know, working with archives to to interviews, and I, I guess another another aspect would be, um, you know, I although the the book is is really you know it's um, it's uh, focused on uh, reconstructing a history in, in large part, um, but I did have an anthropology background, and so uh, field work was was always, um, uh, you know. Uh, sort of significant in how I imagined doing things and most most people who have written about um, southern African uh, liberation movements in exile um, are coming from uh, you know a different a different um, disciplinary uh, starting point so um,
0: in terms of this the way that you sort of started to structure this 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 book I find it very interesting how um, you, you start, you know, in, in, in the first part of the book, you, you sort of set down these sort of uh, connections that you're trying to explore, you know, uh, like you said, between Camp Nation and the way in which history, those histories are both uh, told from an official point of view and remembered by people. Uh, and then you start with the, the case of uh, Kasinga, uh, the, uh, this, this one uh, camp that was attacked, um, and, and then you use it as a way to sort of make those connections in this instance. And then later on, you move into other, other camps. Um, can, can you tell us why you thought that that was, uh, I thought that was an interesting sort of structural decision. Uh, how to, why, why start with this one camp uh, and, you know, tell us uh, sort, of, sort of to flesh out your methodology and, and all these different connections and then move to the other camps?
1: So I, I made that choice because I thought that um Kisinga draws together the relationship between camp, nation, and history in Namibia and across the southern African uh, region in a in a in uh in a an extraordinary way. And so the, the first chapter I'm I'm trying to, you know, I'm it's sort of Know, classic introductory chapter in the sense that I'm, I'm laying out what the book is about and um, what some of the the you know the major themes and interventions in the literature and then a you know an outline of where I'm going in the book and it, it fleshes out this paradoxical relationship between camp nation in in history and paradox being that you know uh, these camps are at the center of a of a of a national history um, and yet, um, they have uh, they have all these silences, uh, uh, apparent silences, uh, uh, um, and uh, uh, there's, uh, and yet people are speaking about these these uh, silence histories um, uh, outside of an official space. Um, and I'm I'm theorizing that that this complex and paradoxical relationship between camp, nation, and history in Southern Africa in the first chapter, and then. I thought, let me move in with discussion of Kasinga because Kasinga can highlight this uh, this relationship um, in detail and then um, move into the rest of the book in which effectively I, I build up over several chapters the social history of these camps, highlighting how uh, hierarchies formed within the liberation movement in exile. And then that's part two. And then part three is how people... Uh, uh, articulate these histories of these camps in the in the aftermath of, of exile but in that one chapter on Kisinga, uh all these thematics are are drawn uh, together which are then fleshed out in the rest of the, the book so that's why I, I did it that way. I also thought that um, um, the, the Kissinga chapter sort of fits as a standalone uh piece in a way that some of the other chapters they you know the the other chapters build on each other in a in a way the kasinga piece the way i I write it is i i take a photograph and i i give um uh, which is also the the cover photo for the for the book um or the the cover photo for the book is the color version of the the black and white photograph which i found in the archives um, national archives in namibia and i I share what the caption of that, that photo is, and then, uh, and then the rest of the chapter is highlighting all that we miss if we just take that caption um, as, as what this image is about. And I thought that was a, a way to, um, kind of a, a compelling way to, to draw together the chapter.
0: Uh, I agree. And as a matter of fact, I felt that that chapter made it, uh, I mean, it, it's such a complex set of uh, connections that you're trying to make throughout the book uh, that I, I feel like that after reading that chapter, it really facilitated my ability to follow those threads through the rest of the book. And, and I think it sort of fulfilled that, 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 uh, that role very well. In addition to uh, sort of presenting some of the wider issues, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the Kasinga, uh, sort of the, the, the experience of Kasinga? Why is it that it became um, such an important sort of uh, camp and episode in the larger history of Namibia? Uh, and, and what are sort of those, those sort of like larger uh, threats that it allows you to sort of follow uh, through the rest of the book?
1: So, on uh, May 4th, 1978, the South African Defense Force attacked the Swapos uh, camp at Kasinga in southern Angola. And it's the, that attack is the single um, largest loss of life of, uh, of Namibians um, of any time in Namibia's anti-colonial struggle. So, um, and uh, that. Know, the significance of of that, um, the weight of that, um, the suffering of, uh, surrounding that attack, um, you know, bears very heavily, of course, on on uh, uh, so many people, um, and has been, you know, taken up in in Namibia uh, as a, a a commemorative day. So in Namibia, there are three um, major national holidays and that's one of them kasinga day so there is a a kind of a a that's kasinga has a centrality in the national narrative of namibia that uh you know is uh, uh, is greater than any other camp and it's significant so that's that's part of of why there's such a, a weight around that that site um but because of that, the, the, the weightiness of, of Kasinga for Namibians um, uh, and, and the way that, that the representation of Kasinga was, um, was drawn out in the context of uh, Southern Africa's liberation struggles, it's very hard to, to pick at uh, what the site actually was, how people actually lived there. Um, uh, in, in the context of the liberation struggle, Um, You know, Namibians, um, Swapo, many Namibians and many supporters of of Namibians and their anti-colonial struggle um, highlighted the camp as a a refugee camp, um, pointing attention to the, you know, the many women and children that were killed in that attack, um, the extent to which people were unarmed and just the, you know, the the sheer um, brutality of it uh the South African Defense Force, an apologist for apartheid South Africa, by contrast, presented Kissinga as a, a military camp, a legitimate target. And so depending on what side of this conflict one found oneself on, um, one already knew what this camp was and what it was all about. Um and uh the 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 uh, the chapter you know moves into looking at what everyday life in, was in this camp and, and one of the things that i argue throughout the book as you already mentioned um esperanza is uh, that the this camp was uh, i would argue is a liberation movement camp and it really doesn't fit the the stereotypes or the imagery that either side was trying to project around it it has it had elements of of, of both um was certainly full of of many people, mostly full of people who were not armed. Um, And, uh, and certainly these individuals were considered refugees by um, the United Nations, by the Angolan government, um, by SWAPO. Uh, uh, On the other hand, SWAPO did have a a military uh, headquarters in the camp, though it wasn't known to many people who were in the camp and, uh, and so, uh, if you go into the South african uh, defense archives you you can see what they knew about that headquarters, and I um, ended up interviewing a lot of people who were involved in the in the creation of that headquarters and were somehow involved in um, liaising between uh, uh, rear uh, bases of of uh, the People's Liberation Army of Namibia, which is the name of Swapo's guerrilla army and the front along the Namibian angolan border and uh, and these uh, these coexisting elements and many other elements um, have totally been flattened in the representation of this place so this chapter tries to bring out the complexity of the live space of the of the camp and and how power also worked within that space um, uh, as well as the you know the uh, the idealism of the of the space um, highlighting this this uh this tension which is there in all these um liberation movement camps it, spaces of you know great idealism uh, uh optimism utopian notions of the the liberated nation which is coming and 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 many uh, changes in in, in uh, social relations um that contrast with the colonial setup you know breaking down of of uh, you know uh, various uh, you know prejudices and and norms and in, in colonial um um uh you know colonial southwest africa now namibia um on the one hand there's this dimension on the other hand they were sites in which those who administered the camps had you know tremendous amounts of power over the the people who um who lived there and this was uh, this was a war zone um uh and uh and uh, people governed these sites um certainly kasinga but uh, other camps that i that i trace as well um you know, in a, in a very hierarchical, um, uh, manner. Um, and I, in presenting Kasinga, I have a lot of detail, um, both from, because there happens to be more archival, uh, material on, on uh, Kasinga than many other camps because, in part because of the histories that I've shared, uh, but also through oral histories, tried to flesh out what it was like, um, in the camp and, uh, and then pointed, um, uh some of you know uh, how it's become so difficult to to read the camp in any other way than this uh, military camp refugee uh camp uh debate um how effectively um images um uh, became uh, settled about what the what the camp was and and then uh, you know finally moving into how it is one um opens the the space and sees other perspectives as i mentioned a moment ago uh, there were you know people who were involved in setting up the um the command headquarters for plan uh, at Kasinga were very spoke with me about it not only that they were quite keen some of them to speak with me about it and this speaks to a, a recurring dynamic in um I found in my field work and that is these individuals had, had no uh, interest in making any apology for the apartheid regime um these individuals were. Um, were uh, enthusiastic supporters of of Swapo and of the and of the Liberation Army, but they felt sidelined in more contemporary um, uh, conversations about uh, about Kasinga, the most significant camp in Namibian history because they uh, were involved in setting up a military headquarters at a refugee camp, which uh, of course the military headquarters doesn't exist in the dominant narrative so um, they were keen to get their side of the story, um, out, but when you start to pull these you know different pieces, and often you know um, you know uh, coming out um, the founding of this office, or even more mundane things about how camp life worked, um, that they were involved in, that they were administered, you know, that they were proud of, but that don't align with the official narrative and that's um, and that's how I, I end the chapter effectively, moving from a reconstruction of a liberation movement camp to uh, uh, through discussions of the productions of histories around this camp, including a lot about rumors um, and, and many kinds of historical production then finally moving to a, a more methodological point about how the history of this camp opened up in my experience and how I'm you know effectively drawing from similar dynamics and to write about other camps in which I'm not um, in every case you know detailing the how uh, methodologically the, the sources came together for me, but the dynamics uh, of production that opened up um, were comparable to this case of Kasinga which I, I share in uh, more detail.
0: Um, yeah, no, like I said, I think I found this this chapter really, really, um, uh, like you said, on the one hand, it, it can stand alone, but on the other hand, it really serves as a very good introduction um, to, to the, especially to the second part. Um, Okay, but let's move into that. Uh, so, in the second part, you, you actually look at uh, specific camps. And, and in a way, it is it's part chronological, but uh, also uh, you, you, you explore, like, the speci- uh, you, you structure it in terms of the camps and you know, the, the particular moment in history in which those camps uh, came to exist. The, the the geographical locations in which those camps came to exist and then the the significant events that sort of emanated from those camps uh or that are re- mostly remembered from those camps and how what they tell us about the, sort of the history of swapo and the way in which swapo was evolving um so you you choose three uh camps uh the first one is uh, at least the, the the ones in tanzania and and you focus uh, mostly on kongwa um and then you move to Zambia, uh, and then uh, you finish with Lubango. Uh, can you tell us uh, about, you know, these three camps? Uh, can you, uh, you know, just in general, what, what you uh, what would you like to highlight about what these uh, three particular chapters are telling us about the, the the evolution of all these relationships and how they we see the building of this um, sort of na- na- narrative around the nation and the building of the nation and the liberation movement.
1: Sure. So I mean the second part I'm I'm trying to craft a narrative that demonstrates how hierarchies were were formed in the camps. Um and so although I, I did um I did research on uh every Swapo camp but that I um that I could collect information about and, and write about many other camps um in, in you know in passing or in parts of um, these chapters, I focus on a few uh, specific locations and a few specific moments that are, um, I think, the crucial ones for the argument that I'm trying to to lay out. With Kongwa, con- uh, this uh, camp in in Tanzania, this was the first camp for SWAPO and for um, liberation movements affiliated with. um all of uh, Southern Africa's now uh, uh, but post-liberation nations—again, I, I use that to refer to um, uh, South Africa, Zimbabwe, Namibia, Mozambique, and Angola. The only um, uh, Zapo uh, was um, at Congo before Zano, but they were both there uh, eventually, and all the other now-ruling parties were um, were based there. So uh, it was—I I felt like a logical place uh, to start, and there were. Um, in terms of you know uh, a narrative, um, but also it part of what's interesting about Kongwa, uh, especially if you're if uh, for people who are you know engaged with a Namibian story, is um, and especially some of the conflicts um, with uh, Swapo and exile. It predates those um, the 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 big uh, the conflicts that um, become uh, better known to those who are who follow Namibia's liberation struggle, occur later. And yet what one sees at Kongwa are um, the same kind of camp dynamics, um, uh, same kind of um, uh, uh, administration, same kind of um, uh, distribution of resources and control of movement that play into conflicts in later stages. And one sees all kinds of, of conflicts emerging in that, in that site some of which um you know directly play into the you know the the better known conflicts that occur later on, some of which um are not as significant in those uh, later conflicts but are are um percolating issues in 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 Namibia uh today so effectively um i that's why I chose to to write about Congo i also in in the case of congo um you know I it's one of the camps that i I went to physically and um, and I have collected a lot more material about Congo and have written about Congo outside of the context of the of the book but i I had a a, a richness of material with with Congo, um similar to Kasinga to focus really on one one camp because I've done field work in Congo um, um, with local people and so then you know uh, although that's not the center of the argument I'm making there the the you know the chapter effectively traces relationships between um, not only Namibians and and uh, members of other liberation movements but Namibians and local community and looks at how um, you know the Tanzanian government relates to local community and um, Namibians and and so there there are a, 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 a wide range of international relations um, that I'm tracing there which is also a, a major theme of the book and and, uh, and and of this part of the book um, of hierarchy formation I'm, I'm it's it's occurring. I'm looking at it as a micro history of Namibians, but I'm also looking at how it relates to broader structures, um, uh, international relations in that particular site of Congo. Um, how they played out. Um, um, uh, so uh, that's that's why I chose Congo uh, for the third chapter. The fourth chapter and the second chapter of part two uh, looks into um, a major conflict that occurred in. In Zambia in the mid-1970s. Um, the mid-1970s was in a, a very volatile uh, period in uh, southern Africa's liberation struggles. It was a period of a great deal of promise, um, because for those who were supporting the anti-colonial movements, because of course um, Mozambique and Angola became independent, and that was a, a great opportunity for uh, Namibians um, uh, who could now um move across Angola's uh, border um and uh you know onto the uh, Swapo's headquarters in, in Zambia at that time. Um but it also uh was very difficult for Swapo to, to manage um because uh whereas there were, you know SWAPO members in exile until the mid-1970s you could count it in the hundreds um suddenly there were thousands. Um and uh this um uh, at the same time, uh, uh, Kenneth Kawunda was um, in negotiation with uh, Forster and the South African government, and the so-called detente. And there was pressure on him to try to curtail the the activities of of armed movements in Zambia. And this uh, was just a recipe for for conflict, not only within SWAPO but in other liberation movements operating out of Zambia. And I try to contextualize that, but unlike um, the little bit which had been written about this um, previously in, in in the Namibian historiography, I look at how the camp dynamics shape how this um, plays out, um, and the extent to which uh, um, uh, the you know the the way that the conflict uh, unfolds and the way it is resolved um, reflects who had power in the camps, because effectively when uh, the conflicts unfolded in in Zambian camps, both ones that were Primarily, uh, inhabited by guerrillas and ones that were pr- primarily inhabited by people without military training. Um, uh, uh, the, uh, the leadership of camps, um, and, and, uh, you know, the, the people who could speak on behalf of Swapo were able to, uh, to remove food for people who were not aligning with the, with the party line. And it was, it was really a very a direct politics of the belly and, uh, um, that played out there, uh, um, food and, uh, all forms of physical coercion as well. Um, uh, so it's, it's a very important moment, um, at, uh, in, in Namibia and Southern Africa's history. So that's why I chose that. Um, I should also say there's some unique archives related to that that moment as well. Um, um, through, uh, some people who, uh, uh, so a lot, uh, uh, some people who were involved in uh, administering those camps kept, um, uh, when the Namibians came into Zambia during that uh, 19, mid-1970s period, they kept archives and um, invited me to their uh, home to, to access those archives. And so that created a really um, uh, rich, um, uh, rich empirical material to reconstruct that history. Um, and then moving on to the, the next uh, chapter um, uh, as you say, it a, focuses heavily on the Bongo, which um, uh, many Namibians were based um, outside the Bongo uh, um, in the 1980s, really from the late 1970s onwards. Um, and, uh, and so it's a very important uh, site for engaging with that period in Namibia's liberation struggle. But more than that, um, it's the site where the security apparatus of, of Swapo had its headquarters, and where a purge unfolded—the the purge to which I was um, referring uh, at the beginning of, of these comments—that um, uh, had affected uh, the the students at Saint Therese, and and um, but it's also where uh, many many others who are not connected to that school, um, hundreds if not thousands were um, detained in underground. Uh, 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 prisons, uh many disappeared there um on the premise that they were spies um and the, the chapter really looks at how um you know it, it it um highlights the social world in the bongo uh and what was going on within swapo and angola at that point more generally the the incredible pressure that swapo was on as as um as the south african uh defense force was was upping its um it's uh, it's you know attacks into southern Angola um, and the you know the uh, pressure to find out and to understand how they were uh, locating uh, Swapo camps um, um, and uh, concerns about who might be selling out to them and then how this then plays into a power struggle within um, the liberation movement it, itself. Um, wherein in uh, um, uh, different units within. The, the liberation army uh, pit themselves against one one another, and the security apparatus um, uses its you know uh, influences the security apparatus its um, uh, to uh, project uh, ideas about spies and and really use the the fear of spies that was uh, shaped by the conditions in southern Angola at the time to um, to uh, to its own ends. Um, in an internal, uh, conflict within SWAPO. And I, 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 look at, at that, um, those politics, um, as they unfold as, as well as, uh, how this discourse worked in a more uh, sort of classic, um, anthropological vein, um, I, I, how, um, you know, how socially, uh, people, um, came to to fear certain, uh, identity categories as potential spies, um, um, sort of, uh, um, how this uh, discourse, uh, how people spoke about uh, spying, who people were comfortable speaking about and not comfortable speaking about and how that plays into the manner in which the security apparatus um, uh, picked up people um, uh, as alleged spies um, and, and how people uh, were um, intimidated into not uh, speaking up about things that they knew were going on or were highly suspicious of um, around them. And that's how they, the part of the the book that's part two, um, I guess, concludes.
0: Uh, one of the yeah, and I think it's interesting. Um, what, one of the things that I found uh, really um, illuminating from these uh, three chapters is precisely that the the emphasis that you give to um, to sort of like the two if you want to put it like, like the two layers, you know, the layer of experience, you know, how people, everything from how people arrived into these camps and the different motivations, why people would arrive into this camps, uh, oftentimes not even knowing uh, exactly uh, what to expect uh, all the way to the, um, uh, to the international scene, you know, how, how much the international scene, uh, shaped, uh, like you said, this, this uh, unequal and hierarchical relationships between the camp. And, and, uh, and in a way, it seemed to me that you were making this really powerful, we were painting this really powerful picture of how it, we're talking about basically almost two decades of, 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 of these liberation movements operating uh, from uh, from from exile and how in in these conditions they're trying to resolve questions about who belongs to the nation and in what capacity and what makes some people more you know uh, often, uh, more likely to join the, the movement and others less uh, and, and and so uh, all those sort of those themes start to sort of um, come through in these three chapters uh, now. As you move to part three and you start thinking more about how precisely how people who were in these camps are remembering their, their life histories uh, uh, from uh, their experiences in these camps, um, so you start talking, uh, the first chapter focuses on, on, on um, sort of like the, the way in which uh, different groups have tried to challenge the national history or the official history. Uh, not just within Namibia, but even uh, beyond the borders of Namibia, uh, and uh, so how what has been basically the the role or the response uh, to uh, to this sort of these stories that like like you said are not necessarily uh, uh Can you tell us a bit about uh, this these three groups: the committee of parents, ex-detainees, and, and the movement for breaking the wall of silence movement, and what has been their role in trying to sort of uh, influence uh, uh, the, the national history
1: yes so as you say these there are uh, the chapter traces three moments in time three groups of, of people who have ch- tried to challenge the the way uh, the official history of exile is told um, the committee of parents were uh, a committee of Family members of people who were detained by Swapo in exile, and it, um, although uh, it was very difficult for people inside Namibia to get information about what was going on um, in exile, rumors did, you know, circulate um, uh, eventually about what was going on, especially at Lubongo. Bongo, and I, I trace how a few uh, individuals with um some international connections in this you know uh you know global anti apartheid solidarity movement started to to learn um information about uh, what was happening within swapo in, in angola and, and and became very uh, you know concerned about um about this and and what it meant for their own family members um who um you know in the case of um, the uh, the uh, um erica biakas who um, who uh, was founder of the committee of parents, you know, uh, died in, in the Bongo. And, um, and so I, I trace, you know, the, the, the circulation of, of, of knowledge about what was going on there, how they try to mobilize themselves. And then the barriers that they, that they um, run into um, as they try to, to expose what is, um, what is happening. And, uh, you know, as one might suspect, if, you know, um, given the incre- extremely polarizing circumstances or context of uh, anti-colonial struggle in southern Africa, to to be uh, criticizing what was going on in Swapo's camps was easily projected as if it was an apology for the apartheid regime, despite the fact that most of the people who were involved in the committee of parents had family members who were Swapo members, and many of them were Swapo members themselves, at least before they found out and um, became part of the committee of parents. So i uh, uh, so it, it looks at how you know what regardless of the kinds of evidence that they managed to bring out, how they were stigmatized and sidelined, um, how even uh Kissinga uh comes back into the the story um where people uh, you know project that um you know somehow this group is by by criticizing um uh what uh you know Drawing a, a a a light towards what was happening in the Bongo, um, they somehow are um, uh, the apologists for apartheid, and they are responsible for the deaths of uh, hundreds of Namibians at Kassinga. Effectively, this, these issues were um, uh, connected in in that way, um, uh, and you know, I trace it now to the next um, the next uh, group, uh, next key moment. When the ex-detainees or the detainees become ex-detainees, um, and here, uh, so I'm looking at people who are actually leaving their prison cells um, in Angola and and telling uh, the international press what has happened to them, because as part of the uh, negotiated settlement for Namibia, uh, both sides had to release their their um, you know their their prisoners, and, um, and although many people. Uh, uh, died or disappeared in uh, those camps in the Bongo. Um, there also were some that were uh, not only survived, but were uh, you know presented to uh, the press as evidence that SWAPO is is letting go of its own its own prisoners. And so here you have people telling their own stories. And the the uh, and there are, there are photographs that accompany this part of the, the text because a, um, a very important photographer John Liebenberg was um, on the scene representing the Namibian newspaper. So you actually see the the images that were projected at the at the time. Um, and yet these stories again were uh, stigmatized. They they certainly affected um, the politics at the time of Namibian uh, independence and uh, Namibian elections, but they. Um, it was. It became very hard for for most people to um, to buy into these stories um, uh, in the in the maelstrom of of uh, the independence elections. Um, uh, and the chapter goes into uh, analyzing that. And uh, then uh, fast forward again several years in 1995, the, the third moment and a set of actors, when a a German pastor by the name of Siegfried Groth Published a book called Namibia: The Wall of Silence, wherein he um, told his story of engaging with Namibians in, in exile, including his engagement with um, the detain, what's so called so called detainee issue as it's known in, in Namibia, and which really refers to the Bongo detainees, although there were many other detainees at other camps at different times. Um, and uh, Groot was a, um, a had been a, an outspoken anti-apartheid figure who had been banned from uh, N- Namibia um uh during the uh, anti-apartheid um uh, struggle and and so had uh, some you know through that on that basis and on the fact and the basis of his being a, a church uh figure um as a kind of moral authority especially among many um Namibians um uh, this was a you know he was trying um uh to bring out the story in a way um that would uh, get a, a conversation going and it might be um uh, less uh polarizing um and of course that this moment nineteen ninety five when he uh, publishes this book the t r c is um uh gearing up um in in South Africa, and so there's uh, a lot of hope among people um uh who want this history to to, to come out and be recognized that there's going to be a kind of a reconciliation process, um, in Namibia and that this book might be, um, a, uh, you know, a, a touchstone, uh, or, uh, for, for that, um, process. But, um, again, uh, um, it's very difficult, uh, to, for this, uh, the book is st- heavily stigmatized, um, uh, and uh, uh, it doesn't. There is no uh, reconciliation um, commission in in Namibia, and uh, and and so I look at again. The, what are the dynamics at that period of time, which are keeping uh, a lid on any sort of official recognition of that history?
0: And that uh, enables you in the in the following chapter to to really uh, sort of start uh, exploring that that notion of reconciliation. What does re- what does reconciliation mean in Namibia, and how it has tried to uh, how you know how particularly the state has tried to um, pursue it, uh, and 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 you have some really really interesting insights about. Uh, sort of the shortcomings uh, of the the way in which reconciliation is, is perceived in the Namibian context can, can you sort of tell us a little bit of that that critique and um, and h- how do you see it uh, uh, and, and do you do you see any opportunities uh, for that critique to uh, you know so, so so how do you see that your camps histories the camps histories that you have uh, told us uh, affect uh, possibly some change in the way in which reconciliation can be affected
1: yeah so the 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 broad argument is that reconciliation has become uh, conflated with the national narrative in Namibia and uh, as a result um, although Namibia uh, maintains uh, the Namibian government maintains that it has a A policy of of national reconciliation. Uh, In fact, that um, uh, policy of national reconciliation um, is has primarily been about affirming the national party, as told by um, a relatively uh, few members of the ruling party. Um, And uh, for uh, many people, not only those who are, um, you know, directly victims of um, these human rights abuses in exile that I've been speaking about but also um you know people from uh various communities whose um experience in post-colonial Namibia is impacted by that history and even you know uh, very loyal members of the the ruling party who um uh who uh you know are, are align themselves frequently publicly with the official history but have all kinds of um disagreements with how that history is told. You know, many of these, um, uh, all, all these groups that I've just described, um, uh, many different categories of people don't see this reconciliation as reconciliation at all. And so um, appeal to reconciliation, whether it's on the record or off the record, is something which is very important to Namibia and which is not um, you know, effectively uh, addressed by, uh, by the national reconciliation uh, policy. Um, and yet, I think uh, I think there is a lot of uh, scope for uh, you know opening up these histories in the in the future. And I, um, you know, and one of the reasons that I you know ended up um, you know focusing my book on camps is they seem like such a rich space for doing this. I mean, camps are are are, are, uh, are the as I've said are the center points of. Um, a lot of these power struggles within the liberation movement um, um at the same time they are they are the places where most namibians lived in in exile and um I can be focal points for discussions of of exile that that speak to people's experience and that recognize the different kinds of experiences that, that people have um, um of course one doesn't have to think about that and just in terms of camps um, uh, and the and, uh, camps becomes the way that I, I draw draw it all together. But um, there are so many uh, different motivations that people had for moving uh, into exile. Um, uh, so many different kinds of relationships with uh, uh ruling party. Um, um, uh, so many different diaspora of, of exile, which don't align with the, um the the way that Namibians were supposedly supposed to move um when they were in 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 exile. Um uh and and many people who were um were somehow uh, uh, you know on the wrong side of of the the struggle um uh, and yet who are not uh you know victims of these you know uh you know better known um uh conflicts such as the one at Lubongo or the the one in um uh, mid 1970s zambia um these are if, if these these histories are circulating people are talking about them people are, um because um the national narrative is so uh significant for um uh, uh, recognition um in Namibia, the opening up of this narrative to these kinds of histories um would uh you know potentially um uh, allow recognition and 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 conversation among people who regularly in official spaces either have to be quiet about what happened to them, um, or are, uh, uh, or are outwardly stigmatized, um, for what they supposedly did without any understanding of the context in which they did it. And I try to bring that out in many different examples through many different stories, um, all of which in some way come back to, uh, experiences that people had in, in the camps. Uh, yeah.
0: Uh, and, and, just to sort of uh, bring you to the end of your book, then you expand that, that, uh, that reflection um, beyond the borders of, of Namibia and just talk about more expansively about this, this uh, sort of how the camp uh, sort of looms large in, in, in the possibilities of the post-colony or the post-colonial period in, in wider Southern Africa. And I think you've obviously, throughout the book, you've made this this case. I mean, the, the camp wasn't, uh, it was not, not only a means by which a, a sort of like a collective narrative about uh, independent Southern Africa was emerging, but, um, you know, the, the region as a whole was very much connected through the experiences of, of these camps. Um it, can you just tell us about these conclusions that you reach and how the camp is revealing or can reveal all these new insights about uh, the the possibilities of the post colonial uh post colonial period in southern africa
1: so there is of course um a, a much broader literature on on camps that i'm and i am uh, you know tying into that in the in the book um uh uh, you know, uh, from uh, work on uh, the significance of the camp as a, a social a social space, um, uh, uh, and you know how it fits in, you know, global contemporary history, um, and I'm I'm trying to uh, work out from my 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 detailed um, uh, research on. Namibian's camp experience is to think more broadly about how we might think about you know camps in, in southern Africa i mean the 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 um, you know the starting point for comparison really is with uh, liberation movement camps you know as I said at the at the start you now i I argue that the camps that Swapo administered in exile were were Liberation movement camps, and we should see them as a as a kind of a camp which um, has its own distinctive features. But it wasn't, of course, just SWAPO that administered liberation movement camps. It was um, uh, many Southern African liberation movements administered liberation movement camps, camps with a common set of qualities. And um, and although I think there's uh, you know quite a, a bit of research that would need to be done um, in different national contexts to see. You know to what extent the you know the power relations um uh and narrative construction can be tied back to the camp in say Zimbabwe or uh Angola, um uh, South Africa, Mozambique, uh, you know, in the same way that it is in Namibia, I think there's um there's, there are clearly a lot of common dynamics that run across these camps that one can you know can see in the in the secondary literature that it that exists. And that's um you know a starting point is to say is to suggest um you know shared histories across the region and to propose that more research be done on this um you know on this to see the what kinds of you know uh, to what extent can we think about uh, nationalism in, in in Mozambique through the camp, um, for example. Um, but then I I move in more broadly to you know think about other um you know other camp formations um uh, in, in the region and, and how, you know, uh, this, this tension, which is there repeatedly in camps, because camps are are spaces of containment and immense power for those who, um, can, you know, control them. And, uh, and, you know, when the, you know, for, um, uh, you know, Giorgio Agamben this, you know, is theorized as if this were the, the end of, you know, of history, um, this kind of, uh, you know, the notion of the, the camp. Um, but, you know, if you, I'm, I'm interested in how this produces new social formations, um, uh, new histories, um, and, uh, um, what can we, what can we see about, um, uh, present post-colonial conditions from the, the camps that were created, um, during the colonial era, be they camps that were um, created by colonial governments or camps that were created in the opposition to colonial uh, governments, what kinds of formations um, do we see there, and how do they shape the the post colonies that emerge uh, thereafter? I think there's a lot of um, suggestive uh, literature uh, on this, um, um, you know, in Southern Africa and and beyond. But um, and I'm I'm suggesting that this would be uh, you know, a, a potential way of 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 you know, going into uh, you know a, a productive way of, of thinking about postcolonial analysis.
0: Yes, and and I think the, the the really sort of important point that that you end up making is that ultimately uh, one of the most important, obviously, aspects of of, of building a, a nation is is just making sure that. Uh, there is a truly shared narrative or the narrative that most people can find a place to fit themselves in. And that to some extent, given the diversity and um, uh, both geographical and social diversity of camps, um, this is if, you know, focusing on on trying trying to create a single narrative that uh, uh, that Clearly, excludes so many so many of these experiences is is, is patently the wrong way to go about it, trying to create that, that truly shared narrative. Um, uh, well, uh, it is an incredibly rich book. I I just have to congratulate you and thank you for just how uh, how you brought all those threads together because it is a true tour de force and it's it's magnificent uh, to see it come together. Uh, can you tell us a little bit uh, now that if you have taken so much of your time, um, could you tell us just w- what are you working on these days?
1: Yes. Uh, so I've, I've moved uh, on from camps <laughs> though. I am, I am writing something um, right now for a Oxford research encyclopedia on liberation movement camps, but my, my focus has really shifted from camps to biography. Um, I, uh, I'm, no, I'm, I'm, my, my focus remains tracing these histories of Namibian exiles and, and trying to facilitate dialogue and understanding among people who are entangled in this, um, this history. And I, and I find that, um, camps was, you know, was a, you know, a productive way to, to think about this. And, um, open up some conversations um, now i'm i'm focused uh, quite a bit on on biography which does a lot of overlapping work i'd say i'm i'm interested in in um the uh, this you know motivations that people had um the the things that shaped their their lives um that fall outside of how nationalism you know projects what na- uh, national liberation was all about um, I feel like this is uh um, there's so many themes uh, that can be traced through engaging deeply with individual lives and what um has shaped those lives that uh that are outside of um the the national narratives that have not only been you know um, projected um at the at the state level but have also guided um, much of the historiography to date. Um, uh, you know one the two um i guess the the two major thematics that i'm i'm looking at through biography um one is uh refugees i've been writing quite a bit about the refugee and um you know refugees refugee st- status uh, refugee camp um it's a term that comes up uh, often enough in my in my book uh, on on exile uh, exile camps but i i always wanted to keep a critical distance from it because the, the people I was uh, you know working with didn't often identify themselves as as refugees and um, and the the camps looked a lot different than uh, a stereotypical refugee camp and yet um, I think that's made me really interested in how the refugee has been constructed what assumptions we have when we think about a refugee refugee um, and so I've been tracing through individual lives um, you know the, the stories of uh, uh, of of people who either um, are you know pushing up uh, against the grain of of, of how uh, refugees are imagined in the Southern African exile context, or um, uh, also trying to push at um, global stereotypes around the refugee through through uh, tracing the lives of individual um, Namibian exiles, also looking at some individuals who played a a key role in defining who a Namibian refugee is and, and, and looking at how different that, that is than the, than the stereotypical refugee um, as has been really solidified globally since the, the 1990s. Um, what a refugee looked like um, was something very different in the liberation uh, context in, in Southern Africa. And I think um uh, biographical writing brings out these um, uh, these dimensions uh, powerfully. Um, the other uh, uh, work I'm doing now, again biographical, is, is to actually write a biography. I have I'm writing a, a biography right now of a, a Namibian Finnish couple, um, uh, looking at their uh, personal religious faith and the interplay between personal religious faith and um, Anti-colonial exile politics. Um, uh, this this couple um, is a couple I draw from significantly in writing um, the the chapter of the book on um, on Zambia and um, the conflict in Zambia because they they administered the camps. Call we can call we could call them refugee camps if we want um, for uh, um, for uh, 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 exiles. But they they really were defining the Namibian refugee as a as a figure for the international community in the middle of the 1970s when that was not um, solidified. So it, it their, their story touches heavily on the refugee theme that I'm writing a lot about, but it also goes into other domains, especially um, what faith uh, looked like. Um, uh, faith has been written about in the context of, um, uh, you know, whether uh, religious organizations, in Namibia's case, um, really the church, um, whether it aligned with apartheid or opposed apartheid and effectively reduces the way that people related to religion uh, to, uh, 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 to the position in a political conflict. But I'm interested in, in this biography and moving into the, the personal faith lives of, um, of individuals and, and, and seeing um, dimensions that haven't really been looked at so much.
0: Well... Um, Both projects sound um, tremendously interesting, and we really look forward to having you over again so we can talk about them. Um, Thank you so much uh, for speaking to us today. Uh, I really enjoyed it, and I'm sure our listeners will too. Uh, Take good care. Thank
1: you. Thank you.